What difference can one person make in a global pandemic? One reusable mask is the equivalent to 395 masks. So it doesn't take much. You know, we give somebody a mask, we're taking care of a person. And that is a very powerful thing. We're living in uncertain times, surrounded by chaos, fear, even outrage. But a new world is emerging, putting forth beams of hope, healing, community, and recovery. Welcome to Luminaries in the Dark, hopeful stories about people pivoting their life and their work to rise above chaos and help those in need. I'm your host, Bruce Bracken. Today we're talking with Jonathan Roberts, sponsor of MakerMask, the first federally approved 3D printer protective mask blueprint, which in its first month since launch has been downloaded in over 150 countries worldwide. It's extremely impressive to see the resources, the know-how, and the 3D printing makerspace and technology come together for such an important cause. Jonathan, thank you for coming on the show. Tell me a little bit about yourself and your role with MakerMask. Well, I'm an old Microsoft guy. I joined the company in 1987 and was there through 2000 and worked on a, leading a lot of the product management and marketing efforts for Windows 3.0, NT 3.5.3.5.1 back office. In 2000, I left and co-founded Ignition Partners, which is a local venture capital firm with Brad Silverberg, Rich Tong, Cam Mirvold, John Anderson, John Zagula, a bunch of Microsoft guys. And that is where I am presently. I also started, co-founded a small not-for-profit called R Prime. And it is through R Prime that we're sponsoring this Maker Mask initiative. So my role in Maker Mask is the sponsor for it. It's an outgrowth of my not-for-profit. Got it. Sounds like your history with Microsoft and Microsoft alum, you've been in the Seattle area for a while? I like to consider myself a potted plant. Uh, you know, I was, I'm unique, I think, in that I was born and raised in Seattle. You know, went to Lakeside, attended the University of Washington, and joined Microsoft out of the University of Washington. So, you know, I don't know if it's any great honor, but I think it's somewhat unique that I have never lived outside of a 10-mile radius. <laughs> so I have traveled to other places. I'm aware that other places exist, but I am a Seattleite through and through. And now Seattle, along with the rest of the world, is going through a really rough time, devastating for many due to the COVID-19 pandemic. How has this changed your life? I suspect my life was very much like everybody else's life. You know, social distancing, being at home, canceling plans like mad, canceling kids' spring breaks and summer travel and summer internships and all the impact that this virus has had on everybody. And quite honestly, being sympathetic to those that it is impacting economically in a very significant way and being very appreciative of those people in the medical profession and the first responders and the people in the grocery store that are putting themselves at risk for our betterment. So I think in that case, I was in the same boat as pretty much everybody else. And, you know, frankly, feel fortunate that it's not been as severely impacted as many others. And yet, with life as we know it just being completely upended, 
you pivoted in your life and in your work to create Maker Mask. How did that get started? My best friend, Gar Larson, his son, Rory, who I consider to be a nephew, he's a, a savant. He's a 3D printing savant, amongst many other things. And he was approached by the local makerspace in downtown Seattle because they had been getting a lot of inquiries from hospitals and other people in the front lines if they had masks and visors that they could use. And so Rory just kind of put his head around it. And he thinks in this incredible creative way that he just he calls them simulations. So he in his mind just started to run simulations of what kind of mask he would create. And he envisions sort of this respirator style mask, like a painting mask, right? Filters on both sides, out filter in the front. And he literally designed the thing in one night. Wow. What's his background with 3D printing? Well, you know, it's funny. We were writing this little sheet on Rory, and one of them was hobbies, and we wrote none. <laughs> you know, he's a guy that sits in his room and just invents stuff. He is one of these sort of creative technical types that, frankly, there's a number of us with Microsoft history can think of a few of those people. They're the ones at the end of the hall with the lights that are dark. That's Rory. <laughs> he's one of those. And He's been 3D printing for probably 20 years, right? He's bought the first ones. He's invented his own 3D printer. He's designed his own nozzles. He has multiple patentable ideas. I mean, he is a savant in the truest sense of the word. I know that Rory has refined his design. And just recently, Maker Mask was one of the first of its kind to receive federal approval on the design of the mask. Congratulations to you all, by the way. That's huge. What was the iterative process like? And what differentiates Maker Mask from other masks in order for it to get the federal approval? And then what does that federal approval actually mean? The approval that the National Institute of Health, the NIH and the FDA and the VA, the Veterans Administration, created sort of a joint task force called the COVID-19 Rapid Response. And so they're working together to evaluate and approve various protective gears, various PPE. And so we, through a series of connections that I have with people in Washington, D.C., were connected into the VA. And within a span of a week, they printed their own versions of the mass, evaluated it, ran it through a series of CDC tests, and gave it approval for use for first responders. So the process itself took a little over a week. They provided feedback that Rory iterated on. For instance, they wanted a filter on the front valve that you breathed out of. So in the event that somebody had the virus, they wouldn't be spreading it to somebody else. So the mask has actually gone through a very rigorous set of tests and examination. The importance of that is significant. One, it's very validating. There's a lot of things being produced. And so it's nice to be able to point to one that's been approved by the uh, NIH and FDA. And so that is extremely helpful. Two, it allows us to basically work with government organizations. You know, we want these masks printed in community colleges and in public spaces. And so they need sort of the nod from a, an authorizing agency to be able to do that. I'm not competing with anybody. I want everybody to win. If people have masks or items that they want to get out, we're putting them on our site as long as they've been approved by 
you know, the NIH or another authoritative voice like the CDC, we want to make it available. So speaking of making them available, what is the process for someone wanting to print 3D masks themselves using the Maker Mask Blueprint? It's really straightforward. You know, you go to makermask.com, you click into this members area, and you give us a little bit of information about yourself so that we know where you are and so that we can follow up and support you in your efforts. Sign a little license agreement that basically acknowledges that you're, you're printing a mask and that you're bearing your own risk in doing so. For 3D printers, that CAD file is called an STL. So you download that file and you have the drawings to make the mask. To date, there have been 110,000 downloads from our site in 137 countries. So the uptake has been really viral. There's been over 650,000 page views and over 100,000 unique sessions. So it's a significant amount of engagement on a global basis. That's incredible that you launched less than two months ago and already have so many people around the world using the Maker Mask Blueprint. But you're also making an impact here locally, here in your own community. You've got your family involved in making masks too, is that right? Two of our kids are involved. So one of the things that we wanted to do was that in order to make this more than just hobbyists, you know, producing masks for friends and family, which has merit, we wanted to create what we call small batch production. So more than five machines printing. So you have some economy of scale, you're printing enough volume that you can package it up and give it to healthcare professionals and first responders and others. And so in order to do that, we thought we needed to create our own small batch production site. So we did that. And we set up a site at the parish that I attend, Epiphany Parish in Madrona. And so right now there are 33 3D printers printing masks. And it's being run by a college sophomore named Alex Wan, who's a uh, mechanical engineering student at a Case Western. My two boys are involved. One is head of distribution and logistics. The other is responsible for answering questions on the online forum. And there's about 20 other kids involved. They are running their own startup. And we're creating a franchise model in the sense that they're productizing how they do this. You know, they've got seven different types of printers up there. How do you make all these 3D printers work? What settings do you do? How do you stage the, the print jobs? How do you manage the logistics? How do you do all this at the same time adhering to safety protocols? So it's been a real project to launch our own site and then to franchise it. Sounds like a great opportunity to get young entrepreneurs involved. Yeah, all these guys. You get so many great stories of people that are getting the mask or people, you know, that, you know, we have people creating small batch production facilities in Washington, Texas, Colorado, New York, the UK, the Philippines. <laughs> and so they're feeling, you know, oddly connected to the world as they answer questions from these places. It creates this sort of global esprit de corps that is really cool. And then with Maker Mask being federally approved, I'm sure there are larger partnerships you've been forming. We are working with just a large number of government agencies. In sort of a recent past life, I had worked with a lot of people in Washington, D.C. related to cyber risk and cyber threat. 
to the country. I won't go into all that. That That's a topic for another podcast. <laughs> but the point is, I had a lot of very good relationships, specifically with a woman named Heather McMahon, who is the senior director of the Presidential Intelligence Advisory Board, the PIAB. And so through Heather, we've connected with over a dozen federal agencies. That's how we got to the VA, incidentally, that you know resulted in the COVID-19 rapid response team. So I'm on daily calls with people that are probably from four or five different agencies within the U.S. government, and we are coordinating our efforts with them very tightly. So yeah, we're tremendous coordination with more federal, actually, than state. I'm very desirous to be partnering more deeply with the state and counties. I'm sort of oddly well-connected to D.C. and somewhat poorly connected to Washington State, which is something I'm trying to rectify. What is it you're wanting to accomplish with these partnerships? Well, two things. The first part is, on the mask, we want to continue to light up more small batch production facilities. So we see a real opportunity for these to occur in community colleges and schools. I mean, just think about wherever 3D printers are. There's no reason that those printers can't start producing masks, visors in the future, pieces for ventilators. I mean, and whether we have that need here or elsewhere, people can start doing things that are productive towards responding to critical needs. You know, one of the coolest things is the Teach for America CEO for Washington is a guy named Tony Berg. He's the one that helped us collect all these printers. You know, I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to collect printers from all these schools? And he did that. And he's now in partnership with the teachers union to set up small batch production sites. So if you're from Washington, the notion that TFA is working with the teachers union on a shared project, well, <laughs> you'll have to sit down, right? That, that has not been a uh, harmonious relationship. And so we want that type of engagement throughout various parts of the state to do that. And then we want help from the state on prioritizing who should get the masks. You know, they're in the best position to assess critical need. Maker Mask mission is to provide masks and visors and other critical items to people on the front lines of responding to the COVID-19 crisis whether they be medical professionals, first-line responders, or front-line people that are working with the public. We see a critical need. We see the value of reusable items. You know, our hero is Dr. Jin. She's from Children's Hospital, who runs a lab testing for COVID-19. And she didn't have masks, you know, so she was happy to get these masks. And on a daily basis, she would be going through five N95 masks because you're supposed to replace them after every test. You know, in our case, you can just clean the mask and replace the filters. So one reusable mask, assuming this crisis goes on for two months, five masks a day, one reusable mask is the equivalent to 300 N95 masks. So it doesn't take much. You know, we give somebody a mask, we're taking care of a person. And that is a very powerful thing. When somebody has a maker mask, how long does it last? I know there's the added feature of using a replaceable filter. Do the masks themselves last indefinitely and it's just the filters that need to be replaced? Or is there still some sort of usage limit? 
we haven't discovered the usage limit, to be honest with you. The, the mask is made out of PLA plastic. PLA plastic is a corn-based plastic. It's the same kind of plastic that when you go to Whole Foods and get their utensils, that's made out of PLA plastic. It's a biodegradable plastic. So all of us in Seattle with our sensitivity to the environment will like this plastic. You know, the, the test that we haven't run is if you're disinfecting it and it's a little porous, so you want to use a liquid disinfectant to, to make sure that it's been sanitized after use, there is going to be some degradation of it over a long period of time with frequent disinfecting. You know, that's just a logical statement. You know, we're not far enough in to say is that, you know, two months of disinfecting five times a day, you know, but there is some limit to it that hopefully is beyond this crisis, you know, but there is a logical half-life to it. We just don't know what it is. Are there particular institutions or personnel that these masks are better suited for? So what Children's Hospital said was that it's for non-patient facing. So you're wearing a mask. You've got a plastic, you know, cone in front of your face. So it muffles your voice a little bit. They found that that would be an impediment for a physician working with a patient. So, you know, in that case, you know, ideally suited for the labs. You know, we've been approached by a large transportation union that has 500,000 members, and, you know, they would love to have it for their drivers. So, you know, you can see it in first responders going into a situation where they might have some patient-facing stuff, but by and large, they just want to protect themselves. You know, the mask and a visor would provide that protection. So that's really its limitation. The reason that it didn't get certified for full medical use by the NIH is for two reasons. The first is, you know, this is printed on printers all around the world. You know, we don't control the whole supply chain. So since we don't control production, we can't have our production facility certified. So by definition, we can't be medically certified for their approval for that use. And they haven't certified PLA plastic. Although NASA has certified PLA plastic for human use, you know, the FDA and such want to do their own tests. So they've said, hey, we, you know, we, we're green lighting this for first responders, but not for physicians. But that said, physicians and hospitals want these things because, you know, in a time of crisis, if you have nothing, this is a very good option. Okay, so switching gears a little and thinking more on the current crisis, I keep hearing people say, we won't go back to normal, which is true. We won't go back to the old normal. But out of necessity and with eyes wide open, we will create a new normal. What do you think this new normal will look like? And how will Maker Mask impact and evolve with this new normal? Okay, there are multiple parts of that question. And so I'm going to play philosopher king for a minute. You know, if you look at the Spanish flu of 1918, it ravaged back and forth through Africa and other areas that didn't have the healthcare to respond. We could be in a situation where we can't go there and they can't come here. And that is massively destabilizing to individual societies and the global order. So, you know, I think we need to poke our heads up and say, okay, we've got to figure this thing out here. But by golly, we got to help the rest of the world, or it's not a world that we're going to want to be living in. So I think it's super incumbent upon us, and we're certainly at MakerMask thinking about 
you know, we're thrilled that we're in 137 countries. We're trying to understand how to get small batch production in these countries because they really represent a grassroots response to this crisis. Hopefully we get through this in, in relatively short order here, but we've got to keep our eyes looking ahead to the rest of the world, which is the third point about what is the long-term impact? Well, one long-term impact is we're really running a large scale experiment with redesigned supply chains. Small batch production is hyper-local production connecting the local need. And if you think about resiliency, that is resiliency. When you look at globalism, you know, we have 90 plus percent of our medicine is now, you know, produced in China. Well, that's not a very resilient supply chain. And so you want to bring more and more things local, particularly at the time of crisis. So, you know, one of the agencies that's been talking to us is FEMA. You know, during a time of man-made or, or natural crisis, you are best suited to rely on local supply chain. So I think that this effort is helping us re-envision global supply chains. And so, you know, we're a very small piece of this. It's not a panacea, but it's one of the first broad experiments in lighting up small batch production supply chains on a global level. And so I think there will be a lot of learning to be harvested from this. And, you know, we're working with a bunch of other government agencies to help them with the data set to do that examination. So I think this initiative will have a longer life through extending those learnings. You mentioned supply chain issues. A couple of years ago, I was privileged to be able to take a trip to Africa as a film documentarian with the nonprofit org Water for Good. And there were water pumps made by a French company and the pumps themselves were fantastic, but there was this one part that would repeatedly wear out, which would cause the pump to break down, and sometimes it would remain broken down for six months to a year. It was really difficult to get the replacement parts in country. I remember some people were smuggling the parts in their luggage to try to get it quicker and without issues. It would have been amazing if Water for Good had a 3D printer, say, in their base office, and they could quickly print out these whenever they needed them and get the water well pumps working again. It seems like the current crisis could help be a sort of forcing function to surface these global supply chain problems and get them figured out. You know, Bruce, I'm glad you mentioned that. I agree with you. One of the things we want to do is create a resource center on the MakerMass site. So if, if you think about it, you know, to all of, all of you Microsofties, MakerMask is the app, and it's pulling this runtime, this digital platform. We're going to have other apps, not all of which are going to be produced by MakerMask, and the platform over time will stand on its own, all of what Windows did and what Windows NT did. And one of those services is going to be a resource center where we post CAD STLs of parts. So, you know, Children's Hospital, for instance, has a number of respirators that aren't in operation for the want of parts and pieces that they can't get during this time of crisis. Well, you know, back to Rory, you know, Rory can reproduce those parts. He's, you know, he takes them and he, he measures them and he, and he CADs them out and we'll just put those files up and people can print out those parts. This is a very extensible idea. You know, my uh, wife, Elizabeth, and I were hiking in Bhutan last year, seems like a million years ago. 
And they have the same problem, right? They've got disconnected supply chain. None of the stuff they have ever gets serviced. And you can't 3D print everything, but God, you can 3D print an awful lot. And if you just had a resource center where you could go up and download commonly needed parts for any number of things, refrigeration, pumps, irrigation, et cetera, you have addressed a real issue. So you can see scenarios where a hospital or a, a local NGO, you know, has half dozen 3D printers and they're addressing local needs. I, I think that's exactly what we're shooting for. And I do think that has a long tail. What is the saying? Necessity is the mother of invention. You know, there, there's nothing like a crisis to sort of clear away the, the fog of what you need to do. The challenge is not to lose it. Bill Gates is, you know, very famous. Uh, number one TED Talk, incidentally now, it shot up past whatever the other one was by about a factor of three from 2015, where he talked about SARS and predicted essentially this crisis. These sort of pandemics, this is a risk that we just have to learn to live with, right? I mean, and, it, and I think it's very analogous to the risk of terrorism. You know, the NTAS, the National Terrorism Assessment System, right? You know, we see these alerts go up and down if there's a credible threat. And, you know, in New York City, it's this level. In Spokane, it's that level. We go through TSA every time we, we go into the airports. I keep trying to tell my kids, you know, guys, you know, we used to be able to walk to the gate, you know? <laughs> They're like, no, you're kidding me. Oh, my gosh. I remember when you could have your family or friends just standing at the gate waiting for you. And they were the first people you saw as soon as you got off the plane. Yeah, exactly. Right. That, that seems like just an entirely different universe, like dial up phones or something. Right. But we got used to it. And the reality is this risk of dealing with contagious viruses it's just part of our life. It is part of what it is to live in a global system. And we are just going to have to get used to managing that risk, just like we manage the NTIS terrorism risk. It's not necessarily desirable. I think if all things considered, one would like to not have these risks. But it is what it is, and we just have to get used to thinking about it that way. You know, I think that's going to be part of the new normal. This is just another risk that we have to put into our awareness and adjust our behavior as the risk levels go up. Hopefully, most of the time, it's a low risk and you really don't think about it. Other times, it's going to be a higher risk and we're going to start adopting responses to it that we're familiar with. And life goes on. That's what it is to be resilient. We never return to the pre-9-11 world, but life went on. And the same will happen here. It just will be different. Honestly, I think the main thing is to acknowledge the people that are truly putting themselves in harm's way, right? The, the medical professionals, the first responders, the frontline service people, and that what we are doing is to try to give them tools to keep safe, to keep their family safe, and to continue to serve the people that they serve. So that we feel like we're enabling the heroes on the front lines of this thing. And we feel very fortunate that we've been given the opportunity to do that. Yeah, those are the heroes out there, the frontline workers. And luckily, though, they have the support of folks like you, Rory, and MakerMask to help as much as possible to keep them safe while they're on the front line. Absolutely. Yep, it's great to be able to do our bit. And I know we mentioned this earlier in the show, but Remind us, where can people go to download the MakerMask Blueprint file? 
makermask.com. And it is very apparent on where to go on the site. So download the files and fire up your printer and make a mask. Perfect. And then for people who want to get involved with or support your efforts, how can they reach out to you? It's really a very cool site. If I, I didn't have anything to do with building it, so I can say that without being you know, self-congratulatory. It was, it was done by other people, but it is a really good site. And people can go and communicate. We respond to email that comes in to Maker Mask. We have voicemail that we listen to. I've lit up a team, an operations group that's super responsive. So we invite engagement. I think there are three things, right? The, the first thing is create a small batch production facility, right? If you've got access to printers, you know, your kid's school, your place of work, you know, get engaged, produce these materials. I can assure you there is a lot of demand. We can help. And that's part of what we're doing. We're helping to connect supply and demand with these small batch production sites around the world. So do that. The second thing is we're trying to create an ecosystem. We're trying to create enough coherency so that a lot of independent actors can do their best work. So understanding what Maker Mask is and, and what we're trying to achieve in terms of a grassroots effort. If you've got thoughts on where to take it and how to expand it or where to use it, you know, let us know. And if we can help coordinate your efforts and tie you into things, we absolutely will. We've got a group of people that are dedicated to doing that. You know, I don't know what I don't know. I don't know all of your resources, all of your connections, all of your thoughts. So be creative. Go, go, go. And the third thing, you know, quite unashamedly, you know, give us some financial support. I'm right now carrying all kinds of different teams doing this thing and would love a little help. So I think for those that are still at Microsoft, they've put in a matching program for others, you know, flip a few bucks into the coffers and th and that will help us continue and expand our efforts. That sounds great. I'll definitely pass that message along. Well, thank you, Bruce. And thank you, you know, for your interest in this project. And Jonathan, thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation and hearing about the work that you, Rory, and the rest of the folks at Maker Mask have been engaged in is just incredible. Greatly appreciate it. It's important during these uncertain times that we do what we can to help light the path through the darkness. I'm your host, Bruce Bracken, for Luminaries in the Dark. Stay safe, stay healthy.